Welcome back to a, another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by Dr. Ian McCarthy, who is a uh, professor at Simon Fraser University and at, as well as uh, Lewis University, where he studies and teaches operations management, innovation management, change management, social media, creative consumers, and the world of management education. Uh, Business Insider has named him alongside Ariana Huffington, as well as Sir Richard Branson, and a prestigious list of smart thinkers that everyone should know. Uh, he is one of the authors of the award-winning paper on the social media honeycomb, which as of December 31st, 2016, was the most highly uh, Google Scholar cited papers across all business management and economics journals in the last five-year period. Uh, he earned his PhD in industrial engineering from the University of Sheffield. Uh, he was also a Fulbright Scholar at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where he studied the impacts of university innovation on local and national economies. He has publications in leading management and engineering journals, including the Academy of Management Review, Industry and Corporate Change, California Management Review, and many others. He's also an award-winning teacher, has taught at some of the leading business and engineering schools, and then prior to becoming an academic himself, he worked as an engineer and manager in the electronics and manufacturing and metals processing engineer, uh, industries. Anyway, uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jonathan. Wonderful yeah, to be so, here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. You were actually recommended to me uh, by a, another PhD on Twitter who said that I, actually, I absolutely need to get in touch with you and uh, talk to you about, in particular, the social media work that you've done. So again, pleasure to have you. And getting started, I'm just really curious here. So you have a background in engineering. And why did you, uh, why did you decide on engineering? Why, uh, why industrial engineering in particular? My uh, career is a little bit different from many. Um, I left school at the age of 16. I didn't go to university. I did, a, did an apprenticeship uh, in mechanical engineering. And um, I grew up in a neighborhood where not many of the kids went to university. And so uh, I had this fabulous apprenticeship. Uh, I worked five days a week for a large international company, learning to be an engineer. And in the evening, went to night school. And when I was at uh, uh, this large company, I met graduate engineers who uh, used to discuss my homework with me, discuss projects and various other things. And so I was exposed to uh, engineering students. So, my, so I, when I left school, I was an engineer right from the very start, very hands-on, uh, working in machine shops, working in uh, design rooms, uh, helping to keep factories running with uh, fixing engineering problems and improving them studying engineer engineering at a trade school and after doing that for several years and also completing my apprenticeship i realized i had the qualifications to go to a university i felt that a university was too big of a jump so i went to a polytechnic to start with did my undergraduate degree at polytechnic in in engineering then went to work for a large uh, metals processing company uh, alcan and while working there i then moved uh, to another organization uh, which made uh, hand tools uh, in Sheffield and, and I also got the opportunity to carry on studying uh, to do a master's degree which again I did more in management still engineering but with more management of engineering like a, like an MBA for uh, engineers and I had a fantastic uh, project supervisor while I was working in Sheffield uh, a, a, an amazing amazing gentleman and he said you know Ian don't go don't go don't go back to work for Phillips Electronics you know come and do a PhD 
uh, do a PhD in engineering and, and we, uh, he sort of ran the industrial engineering group and I did the sort of management side of, uh, of the engineering teaching and engineering research within his group and that's, that's how I got into sort of engineering slash management and, and so right straight from leaving school all the way, all the way through to sort of doing my PhD in my first faculty position. And then eventually I moved from being an engineering professor who taught management to engineers to a business school which had a sort of technology and innovation agenda, which is Simon Fraser University at the B School of Business in Vancouver, Canada, came here in 2003. That's, that's, a, that's a really, really interesting journey. So you didn't even finish high school? I, um, I, I, I did finish... Uh, but early in the UK sense. So I left school at 16, which was the year, which is when you could leave. Um, but if you wanted to go to university, you had to stay until you're 18. And so, uh, so in uh, going back into the, you know, uh, whenever that was, the 70s, uh, yeah, uh, maybe early 80s, you know, it was like, it was common for many, many people to leave school at the age of 16 and become a car mechanic or a hairdresser or work as a bank employee. Oh, not, I see. Not, okay. not everybody, you stayed on for two more years uh, at school if you wanted or college, uh, community college to go on and do university. So yes, so, that, so it's, 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 it's certainly atypical by North American standards mm -hmm. and, uh, and typically not, a, you know, not the usual route into university and life within academia. Yeah, that, that's still a really, really interesting journey, how you, so I'm assuming you probably left at 16 because you weren't super interested in school, like textbook school, like you wanted to go out and you wanted like to do things with your hands, you wanted to go out and work in the real world, and then, uh, or no? No, <laughs> no um, a little bit, but um, a little bit? Okay. I was quite studious at school, but I was very disappointed by um, my grades I got in my final year at 16 very disappointed and I you know and I was working one day with my father you know uh, and we were you know we were cleaning offices that's what we did you know in, in one week to earn you know uh, and I saw this advert in this uh, office building in the city I grew up in and it was saying oh I'm looking for apprentice engineers and I just I just decided there and then much to the disappointment of my my dad uh, that I was not going to go to do the next two years. I was going to sort of almost, you know, just complete there and then and go on to do this apprenticeship. But it was the best thing that ever, ever happened to me. It was really, you know, I, it was a great learning experience. I, uh, it was a very broad, diverse engineering experience. And, and, and I got to learn as well. I got to go to college, night school as well. And so it, it worked out, but it was more, uh, just because I was very disappointed with, 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 with some grades I got, particularly in computer science. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was like, a, and I said, oh, no, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to earn money rather than you know, go and be, carry on being a student for another two years. So there's various different aspects of engineering. I'm assuming you were exposed to a number of them throughout your apprenticeship and everything um, during that time period. So why industrial engineering? Was it just because that was what your uh, mentor, I kind of pushed you into doing and that's what the area that he was in or why industrial? I'm curious. So I, as an apprentice, I was taken on as a mechanical engineer. So designing okay. and making um, mechanical components largely, but it was quite broad. And I was working for a large manufacturing company. Uh, you know, um, it was, it was uh, a division of Philips Electronics and they were making integrated circuits. And so it was in a manufacturing environment. So I enjoyed 
understanding you know, the production processes. Uh, and, uh, Philips at the time was one of the lead users of in Europe of sort of just-in-time principles, lean lean operations principles at the time. So it was it was very a very forward-thinking, very decent employer in terms of developing people. So I got exposed to a lot. And so when I was just applying to go to do my first undergraduate degree, it was like many undergraduate degrees, as you say, it could be aerospace engineering, mechanical engineering, you know, industrial engineering. And I, I just, uh, I like the industrial engineering more in terms of, you know, the, the process of controlling resources and producing valuable out, outputs. And so that's one of the reasons why I, I teach operations management at the moment and do things in gamification and control systems is how you build how you build organizational systems to produce value and solve world problems and so uh, uh, that, that's how I got into it. Fascinating so for those who may not be familiar uh, what exactly would you describe industrial engineering as? So you're you were just talking about operation, like operations management. I mean, are there more components to industrial engineering, or you know, what is what is your definition of what an uh, an industrial engineer is? So I'll start with operations, and then I'll break it down into industrial engineering. Operations is how you build and design uh, processes to take inputs and produce them into outputs. So take a sick patient, produce it into a healthy patient. Take a take a uh, uh, an application for a, a position in an MBA and produce a graduate, uh, take a passenger and get them. It's, it's the processes that take inputs and produce outputs in the world. Everything we wear, everything we consume is produced by an operation. Industrial engineering deals largely with manufacturing. So taking raw material and different forms of raw material and components and, and turning them into products. And it deals with the design construction of production facilities, manufacturing plants. It also involves an awful lot of understanding of, of, the, of the manufacturing technology which goes in those plants, everything from painting to welding to assembly line systems to automatic guided vehicles, uh, you know, all the things that, that you would see in a modern factory for turning raw material into products. So it's still in operations, it's still in operational processes, but it's different from a a service process or a healthcare process or an educational process or a transportation process. It's about manufacturing. And so, um, and, and the industrial part is, is that you would, you, you're, you're not just concerned with this sort of the capacity management and the scheduling issues and the sequencing issues. You're also involved in terms of looking at the technology, which is used to, you know, combine, change, alter, join different parts and different raw materials to produce everything that we wear and you know use and touch in today's society. Very, very interesting. And certainly very important to society as a whole because of just how the whole economy works and you know taking raw materials and then getting outputs. So yeah, very important. Okay, so industrial engineering, you know, you get your PhD at some point, you find your way into academia and you become interested in social media at some point uh, because your most popular paper on the social media serious understanding the dark side of social media i'm curious did you have what was the lead up to that why did you decide to actually enter into into that particular space and say hey like we really need to dissect what's going on from the negatives because as you uh had said in the paper i was I've read through it and um, particularly in the abstract is that everyone was focusing on the 
the bright side, like the upsides to it. And let's talk about the darker sides because that's really important, right? Every new technology that comes out, uh, comes forward, you're going to have benefits, but then of course there are going to be downsides as well. And hopefully the benefits outside the uh, downsides, but of course you shouldn't ignore the downsides. So I'm, I'm just curious as to how to hear that journey. How did you end up like, I want to do, I want to look into this. The journey starts with you know, um, academic freedom and the ability to sort of work on things that interest you and be quite diverse. And so I am relatively diverse, you know, worked in engineering school, worked in a business school. I'm, I'm quite eclectic in the different projects and different problems I work on. I tend to like working with people uh, on interesting things rather than necessarily just uh, focusing on one narrow area, uh, narrow area of, of sort of research. And so this came about, we were working with a great friend and a colleague who, uh, who was at Simon Fraser University at the time, a guy called Jan Keatsman and two other uh, researchers that we were sort of supporting and working with. And we, we had these discussions and ideas around the sort of evolution, the emergence of social media. And we were fairly techie ourselves, and we decided to, you know, write a paper to help ourselves learn how to use social media. You know, what are the different platforms? How do they vary? What's the different functionality? So we found social media, you know, back in, you know, uh, we wrote a paper in sort of 2009, uh, very liberating, very energizing. You know, it's also become very addictive and very domineering and, and you know, uh, is abused and uh, controlling in many ways, but it was it, it was quite refreshing when it came out. And so, in terms of uh, allowing you to broadcast, allowing you to follow, allowing you to share, to allowing you to communicate. Um, and so, when we were looking at all of these different platforms that were coming out, we you know we were wondering, you know, how do we how do we teach our students? How do we teach ourselves how to use social media in a sort of in a in a thoughtful way, you know, how do they differ? You know, how do they vary? And we came up with this uh, honeycomb framework. We, we looked online and we, you know, we were sort of seeing what people were saying about uh, different functional, uh, different sort of social media platforms. And, and we sort of pulled together different sort of sources of uh, information, all, all of which we cite in the paper, which talked about people, when people were talking about this new emergent platform. And we just came up with this very neat way of, uh, talking about it in terms of di several different functionalities, which all, all re revolve around your identity, the extent to which you share your identity, reveal your identity, tell people where you are. It's all about you. And, and that's why it's so domineering uh, in terms of because it allows people to express themselves. Um, and, and so, uh, and we know that you know, people are worried about that now in terms of what they share and who they are and how it's being controlled for everything from marketing to elections to, you know, uh, you know, making our eyeballs just look at these devices all, all the time. But we wrote it as a paper for ourselves, for our students. Uh, it was a simple paper with a simple framework, but, but it worked and it really took off in terms of helping. And it was very refreshing to see organizations all around the world using it to understand how they should use social media. You know, people studying social media were using the framework to understand the different functionalities of, uh, of social media. And then, you know, uh, we took a break from that and then um, did other stuff. And then, you know, several years later, so almost nine, ten years later, you know, uh, 
the, the dark side of social media is well well known and well established. And we took the same framework, which is really showing how the functional, functionality of social media liberates us, you know, allows us to communicate, allows us to talk, but now how it's controlling us and how it's, you know, how we're addicted to it, how people, you know, lose their jobs, lose their lives, you know, in terms of doing things wrong with social media, uh, in terms of going, you know, in terms of how they share, communicate, reveal where they are, uh, being obsessed with status, you know, in terms of, you know, in, in terms of this expression of self. So that, that, that's the journey. And it was, it was really a side project, but a very important side project in terms of, because, and I myself, you know, I'm quite, as you mentioned in the intro, you know, I'm, someone who's been quite active on Twitter because I followed, I followed my own advice in the, in, in the paper in terms of, so I'm quite active on social media, primarily in Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook because I follow my own advice in terms of strategically using it um, for either personal reasons or professional reasons. And, you know, if you ask my family and, and many friends, you know, they say I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm well consumed by the dark side of social media uh, so, you know, so it, so in terms of writing that paper around the dark side was really another way of trying to practice what I research and teach in terms of understanding the different issues of it. In your research, what did you find from the addictive component of it? Because, I mean, I've heard other people say that social media is addictive and that it's actually designed to be addictive. But I was just curious if we could explore the various ways that these uh, social media companies actually design their platforms to keep you engaged. So that way that you don't want to look away, that you want to, you know, you want to check it every five minutes. I mean, simple things, you know, like um, endless pages. So if you're an early, if you remember when you use social media or even the web originally, you know, you would, um, you'd have to click pages. You have to say next page. There was only so much that was shown on the page, but now we, it's endless. It's scrolling. It's just scrolling. You never get to the end and you just keep going in terms of, uh, uh, very short, you know, like uh, Twitter, it's, it's all about a certain number of characters, um, different, you know, TikTok, certain number of length of videos, um, you know, it's, it's all about bite-sized chunks, the content is very distilled, it's very, very distilled to be visually engaging, orderly engaging, you know, it's, um, uh, it's also, you, you get feedback, you know, you get feedback. So, I'm, you know, I work in a world where, you know, it can take years to do a research project, and years to get feedback on it, and it published. Well, you know, now you can publish something instantaneously and you get instantaneous reaction. And in fact, you want it. You can keep checking back. Have people liked it? Have people commented it? You know, it's a uh, you know, fear of missing out in terms of seeing what other people are doing. So it's addicted in terms of, you know, always watching what other people are doing, where they are, what they're doing. It really does tap into sort of uh, our personal identities and sort of you know how we how we're not used to being bored. We're not used to being bored. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, boredom boredom is partly a bad thing, but boredom is also a good thing in terms of you know uh, being mindful, being separated, being disconnected. And so uh, the technologies. You know, I have my phone on me now. We're talking on technology here. It won't be long before we have technology. We wear technology, but it won't be long before we have technology embedded in us. You know, in, in, and you know, and, and in some cases, extreme cases, that already happens. But uh, it's it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's embedded in us. It will be embedded in us. And so, 
that that's that's how it that's how it controls us. So when you say embedded, are you talking about like what Elon Musk is working on with like Neuralink, like yes. just basically you know a brain implant you directly links you up to the World Wide Web, always Look, plugged I, in at all times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Microsoft was founded on I think the mission statement or the vision statement that there would be a computer in every house and they wanted to create operating systems and there didn't used to be a computer in every house, you know, and, uh, and companies, you know, uh, created on the, there's a computer in every pocket and then yep. there's a computer on every wrist. And then there will be computers in us, whether they're contact lenses, whether they're medical devices that are in, in, embedded in us, you know, there'll be a, they'll be fixed to us in some way uh, where they're collecting information, you know, uh, biological information, you know, in addition to all the other information that we have. And so, you know, that's a reality is that people are predicting them in the same way as that Microsoft said, we're going to create software tech, software technology because we imagine a world where there's a computer in every house and we want to make the software user-friendly, you know, it's, it's a way of driving a computer in your house. Uh, other people are creating technology, software, applications for technology, whole business models around technology where they're imagining a computer inside every person. And so that's likely to happen at some point. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> the, uh, the thought of actually implanting something into my body to enhance it like, like a machine to become part machine. Um, that's, it just seems like very Terminator ish <laughs> when you start to enhance yourself in that manner. But yeah, I definitely could see, you know, there are, as you said, there are people working on it, for example, uh, Elon Musk's uh, Neuralink. And you know, that is a major upgrade and you would definitely have to implant something into your body. Uh, I guess I'm slightly skeptical <laughs> of, of technologies like that. But it's certainly certainly in our future, and it'll be interesting to see how society adopts it. And of course, with any new technologies such as we're discussing here with social media, it um, the downsides of of this of these technologies. Obviously, hopefully, the upsides outweigh the downsides. But it'll be interesting to see as these technologies become adopted by society, uh, the negatives that it has uh, that have to be uh, have to be dealt with. Um, you know, solutions to those negatives have to be created. I'm hearing, any, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing rumors, you know, that um, you know, Google Glass didn't take off. They learned yeah. things. But I'm hearing, you know, that um, uh, Snapchat made eyewear at one point in terms of its glasses. And I'm hearing rumors that Apple will be revisiting, you know, the eyewear technology sector in terms of, uh, and so it's not within us, it's still on us. Um, you know, in industrial applications, we have people who sort of wear robotic skeletons to help them move things around. Again, that's on us. Um, yeah. You know, we've long had pacemakers inside us, um, but you know, imagine, you know, you know, very serious athletes who want to have technology in them uh, in some way to help them be better athletes, better, you know, in terms of doing marathons or doing triathlons or being swimmers. You know, it's. Um, uh, it, it, it will be led with medical drivers, but there will also be, you know, performance drivers in terms of understanding, you know, uh, body posture, you know, in terms of are you sitting correctly? You know, are you eating correctly? You know, so it would be, be very interesting to see 
how this is all going to evolve. You know? And at first, I think it will be quite liberating and exciting for some people. But then when you understand maybe the business models behind it and how people, you know, you, know, you have to remember like most social media, you know, is, is free, <laughs> you know, and so, uh, and, you know, and most people 10, 15, 20 years ago didn't, you know, just thought, wow, this is amazing. It's liberating and it's free. Yeah. But you did, but you didn't realize what you were giving away, and how that was going to influence you know, how society functions, or how or how you individually function in terms of constantly engaging with the technology and constantly giving away information about who you are, where you are, what you're doing, who you're with, what you're shopping, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think, and I'm I'm certainly guilty of this that initially when social media and primarily Facebook first came online, because that was the first like major social media platform that I think that more or less was adopted by the world. Uh, Facebook, you know, it was free. It was great. It was a wonderful way to connect with friends and family, uh, connect with people from high school that you haven't seen in years. So you can stay, you can stay in touch and keep up with them. You didn't really realize the cost, like you said, uh, that you're giving up all of this information. And as many people know now, like, data is the most valuable resource or one of the most valuable resources on the planet. There's so much information, or excuse me, there's so much money to be made off of data, looking at people's data and how can you, uh, and how can you extract the most amount of information from it? So that way that you can tailor content to them, you can sell, you know, sell targeted ads to these individuals, uh, things of that nature. And I think this all, I think it really, I think 2016 people really, really started to realize that social media while it's free, in particular Facebook, uh, while it's free, the cost may not actually be worth it. That you are, you're giving up so much of your privacy um, in all aspects of your life in order to access this platform for free. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that was kind of the wake up call? Because what happened in 2016, you know, in particular, there was a lot of outrage and pushback against Facebook because of Cambridge Analytica and how they used people's Facebook information in order to influence them when it came to the 2016 elections. Yeah, I mean, that was a starting point. You know, we write in our paper that, you know, some of the biggest influences on social media during that election were located in small towns in Eastern Europe. Um, in terms of what they were producing technologically to influence uh, conversations, perceptions around reality, which was going on. Carnegie Mellon just did a really interesting study where they looked at the most influential social media postings around COVID and particularly the agenda to reopen up and reopen up early in, in the US. And they found that a very significant proportion, like, you know, that uh, I, I don't, don't have the numbers to hand, but, but a very significant proportion of like the top, you know, 5,000, several thousand tweets, 80% of them were robots. And then when you took like uh, the, the next sort of several thousand below that, 50% of them were robots uh, in terms of, so it was, so these are um, not real people voicing things. These are, you know, um, um, people with agendas, organizations with agendas. Um, the, uh, 
very nice person who recommended me to you for this uh, podcast, Cami, you know, uh, Cami Ryan, you know, she's done some great research on, you know, how different groups fund and produce and spread misinformation online. And so, you know, the Carnegie Mellon Project reveals that, you know, it reveals that we've got, you know, not real people who are liberated and expressing themselves in terms of, you know, we've, we've got machines at work, machines at work, uh, highly funded, highly effective, highly impactful machines. And so, uh, and you don't know who they are and what they are and what they're doing and uh, in terms of producing content. And so, yes, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, it is quite, it is quite frightening in terms of where we are in terms of, I do work did, with, with the same colleague on the social media paper on sort of deep fakes. We, we want, we wanted to write a tutorial on how deep fakes are produced, how damaging they are. Uh, there's also a bright side to deep fakes because it's a very interesting technology in terms of being able to create whatever you want in terms of images and people and videos in terms of content. Uh, but it's also, when you look at people who consume the messages by defake, it's quite it's, it's it's quite disturbing how many people do not understand, or you know, and, and it's but it's 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 myself included because you just don't know what is real and what is not real in terms of you know you don't know what the source is, and so it, it it's become a big issue. It's become a big issue. So uh, the platforms are still the platforms. And they give free reign pretty much to most people to say whatever they want and do whatever they want to consume. And, uh, and, you know, and there's a lot of pushback to try and regulate and change that. Uh, but, you know, but they're very, very powerful technologies, which people have, have worked out how to leverage uh, because uh, one, to keep us engaged, to keep our eyeballs. So, you know, when you look at the likes of Google and LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter, they, they employ some of the best minds in the world just to control our eyeballs and look at content. You know, originally advertising content and still is advertising content. That's still, I mean, you know, but, uh, uh, but then other people have jumped in because uh, they, they, now how, they now know how to sort of, uh, you know, um, control what we look at, what we see and what we consume. Yeah, no, it, and what you said there, too, about how these companies are employing the brightest individuals from all over the world in order to just kind of tailor this content to keep us engaged with it at all times. And, you know, that's kind of a bit of a scary proposition just because, well, I mean, the content isn't, you know, necessarily always going to be good for us, right? I mean, maybe, you know, then there's the uh, component of addiction, too. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't heard of any sort of actual like medical definition of like a social media addiction but i know that like there are some people that are very very addicted to social media and it could i could definitely see it negatively impacting their life uh, and i i mean even myself sometimes i mean i'm very active on social media because i'm trying to promote the, promote this platform so you kind of have to be right because there's so many different people out there and part of this platform's mission is to teach people how to be you know better consumers of information and many people consume information on social media, myself included. Uh, but I see myself, you know, wanting to check my phone to get that feedback uh, from the community, to see those likes, to see those shares. And I mean, I think that, you know, if you look at, I have an iPhone, and if you look at the, the screen of it, 
it's incredibly visually appealing. And all of the alerts are in bright red and you've got to engage, like it just, everything about it makes you want to engage with it. And you know that it's specifically designed by the engineers in order to make you want to do that. Uh, so I don't know, it's just, it's just, it's just a bit, a bit concerning. I mean, I'm not saying it obviously like it's terrible and it's going to destroy society, but I think that society definitely needs to be aware of it and kind of take steps to perhaps limit our engagement with our smart devices sometimes and limit our engagement with the uh, social media. So for example, one of the things that I do is I've enabled on my iPhone, I've enabled the, the black and white color scheme just by hitting the home button three times. There's some way that you can do that. Uh, a friend of mine had posted online about how you can do that to turn it from, you know, the full, uh, the full color spectrum just to black and white. And it's incredible how much I don't want to inter uh, interact with my phone when it's just in black and white, because it's not, it's not nearly as visually appealing. And when I get those notifications from social media or any other notifications, I just, I don't feel myself being as drawn to interact with them. I mean, um, my understanding is when you talk about that, you know, it's the, the, the when you look at, the psychology which goes into social media in terms of designing platforms, websites, technology. It's, you know, they learn a lot from industries which are being, which rely on addiction. That's, you know, casinos, for example, you know, so we know that with casinos, you know, tend not to have windows, tend to, you know, very defined lines of sight. It's hard to know what the time is. You lose concept of time. Lots of flashing lights, lots of feedback, lots of noise when there's success. Uh, you're always stimulated in terms of, uh, of being in that environment. And so when you look at things like Candy Crush, for example, you know, and game design, you know, and so computer game design, um, you know, when you look at how many people play Call of Duty, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, and other sort of um, computer games, the amount of engagement is 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 impressive like we're talking you know you know we're talking about you know i have a 19 year old son you know and if i was to try and calculate how many hours he spent on a computer game in his 19 years it would be quite significant he would be a you know if you put that same number of hours into professional sport or playing a musical instrument or focusing on one academic subject he would probably conform to Malcolm Gladwell's outlier rule where you've achieved sort of 10,000 hours of use, um, which makes you an expert, you know, you know, or a prodigy in, in one of those areas and stuff. And so that's, that's the level of sort of engagement these, these things do, like you say, from, you know, uh, colors and sounds and feedbacks and shapes and handling and, and being, being wherever you are in terms of, you know, it's, it's, it's on you all the time. So, the social media industry has looked to the gambling industry for, for kind of like for feedback in a sense. The same psychology and same, same psychology. Okay. Same psychology and same research um, um, as gambling, understanding addiction, understanding use. Uh, same with computer games. You know, um, gaming has been around for a long time. Let's 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 look at. Um, Air Miles, for example, it's a game. Some people are very addicted to it. Some people mm. work very hard to collect the points. Uh, these 
ways of controlling people. Remember my background is operations and industrial engineering, which is all about control. So this is why I'm interested in this, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, they have status levels and rewards and you progress and sometimes problem solving and they give you appropriate levels of feedback. And so it, it's, it's always sucking you in, in terms of, uh, you know, in casinos taking your money, uh, in, social media it's taking your time and taking your information and uh and so it's uh it's all about grabbing netflix you know netflix competes for your time it doesn't have adverts but it always it's competing for your time it wants you to watch netflix um and and so it's um there are different ways of of controlling the decisions you make to engage with this piece of technology and either to give them directly money or to give them time or to give them information or to give them your eyeballs for advertising revenue. I suppose that's just a consequence almost of competing in the marketplace, right? Because everyone's trying to compete for your attention. So I suppose it's not surprising that the end result is that you have all of these companies then essentially implementing addiction type business models where they want you to, well, they're looking to the psychology of addiction is saying, okay, well, I want to make you addicted. Like that's, that's the, that's the science that I'm going to use in my business model because I want to maximally compete for your time. Yeah. And I, uh, that's an unfortunate consequence, I suppose, of the marketplace. When was the last time you bought and read a newspaper? I don't, I mean, I, I mean, it's been, ages i can't even remember i mean it's i don't i don't i don't i don't even remember the last time i read a newspaper i get all my news from online these days and so i'm in the same position except for the other day one of my neighbors is away and i'm picking up the newspaper left on her doorstep while she's away and i have a newspaper and when you when you read it it's a very different experience there's no flashing lights there's no way of interacting with the story. I can't like, or I can't connect, I can't go off endlessly exploring. I can't dive into the newspaper. It's mm -hmm. a very, it's a very passive piece of technology, which I'm looking at and it can only be consumed in one way. Um, so newspapers, magazines, TV, you know, 20, 30 years ago, was still competing for our attention and our eyeballs, but it was very one way you know, in terms of what they put into it, you know, it wasn't interactive. Uh, so, you know, you know, buy a newspaper next time and look at how you engage with it. Look at how you interact with it and think about how sedate and lack of adrenaline inducing it is compared to when you engage with your phone and the media, the videos you see, you know, in terms of video content, the, the short snippets. See if you can actually complete reading a story <laughs> you know, from start to end. Uh, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting about how we've shifted in 20 years from that sort of media technology platform or print media to where we are now and, and how you engage and interact with it a different way. And, you know, and so having this newspaper in my house was quite interesting to understand you know, and reflect on how it used to be and how we've changed. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I still read books, but I suppose I'm not getting my news in like book form, like it is with a newspaper. I'm not reading newspapers, but I definitely do enjoy kind of disconnecting from a smart device when I do my reading, uh, mm -hmm. because I can just solely focus on 
the enjoyment of reading. And then there's nothing to distract you. You can just, you just read. It's yes. just you and the words on the page. Uh, there's nothing to like, there's nothing to share. There's no ads popping up here and there. Uh, one of the most annoying things these days is when I go to read, to read anything on, not anything, but a lot of things on the internet, you know, whether it's a news article, I'm just curious about a new subject and you click on these sites and there's just so many ads that pop up and it's, it's very annoying. It's you like, I books. just want, I just want to read the content. You have books behind you. And I was, uh, you know, and I was, I was wondering how old they were and when you last read them, I read books and I read them on a tablet, but like, but I would prefer to read an actual book, but yeah, but I can't carry around a library of books in my backpack or when I'm traveling or moving around. Whereas, uh, and when I do read on my tablet, I often get sucked in by social media and other things and don't, and don't read the book as much as I should do because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also catching up on other things which are happening on other platforms. Whereas a book, as you say, it's like the newspaper, it has one sort of primary use and you can't get distracted from it. You know, it, you know, particularly if you're disconnected. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, for my books, I, I mean, I read them daily. Uh, I mean, I didn't say all of them, but <laughs> I mean, I'm usually interacting with a book. I absolutely love to read and I prefer, I still prefer actual physical books to the electronic books or eBooks uh, just because of the whole experience of it. Mm -hmm. uh, being able to hold the book in your hand um, the smell of the paper is different. The, the texture of the paper between your fingers is different between different publishers that they use. Uh, I'd really like to be able to mark it up. Um, that's something that I learned from my brother. I don't like to do it to my textbooks, but any of the other like nonfiction books that I read uh, passively. Um, so for example, here I have a book called Predictive, you can't really see it, but it's called Predictably, uh, Predictably Irrational. Uh, by a scientist by the name of Dan Ariely. And uh, it's a fascinating book on behavioral economics. And so books of that nature, like I'll just go through and I'll just mark it up with like highlighter or, or tabs or whatever. And I really, really, I mean, that's an enjoyable experience for me. I mean, I have electronic books too, because uh, it, it's, as you said, it's so much easier to, you can carry around an entire library, you know, on a tablet or yeah. a Kindle or whatever. But the whole experience of actually being able to interact with a physical book is something that kind of has stuck with me. So I still like to do that. And uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a textbook collector, too. I just like having I like having books, although it, after a while, you know, you big, build a big enough collection. It's kind of hard to move with it. So I have to downsize every once in a while, get rid of uh, get rid of things that are not absolutely essential just because from a from a moving standpoint, it's very expensive. So but yeah, I love books. Good, good for you. Uh, anyway, uh, let's let's go back to the social media a little bit and dig into like the fake news aspect of it and like how people, like the tools that people can develop or that perhaps are available currently in order to kind of figure out, you know, what's, what, what are, where the facts are and what's fiction, um, what is fake. Uh, what, what have you found in your, in your research? Perhaps we can go through the honeycomb, uh, honeycomb, the honeycomb method if you wanted to. Um, when you look at the, you know, the honeycomb model, and I'll just sort of, you know, talk to it briefly. There's two papers we did, which was, you know, social media, you know, get serious, which was 
how to understand social media in 2010 and, and you know, the different platforms. And then the most recent article was social media, it's serious. You know, we, we talked about like, you know, social media allows you to reveal where you are, uh, form relationships with people, you know, so sometimes indicate your reputation, be part of groups, you know, um, uh, online, have conversations, share content, you know, and, uh, and all that is about revealing your identity. And so when you look at, uh, you know, fake news, it is tapping into that. It's tapping into that in terms of, because it, it can target fake news around your identity. You know, it's able to exploit your online self uh, because you have revealed where you are, who you know, uh, if you have any reputational standing in terms of that you're a top YouTuber or a top blogger or whatever you might be in terms of, uh, you mentioned me in terms of my Twitter standing at one point, you know, that's a, that's a reputational standing online. And then all the groups are on the LinkedIn groups, the YouTube groups, the Facebook groups, um, you know, uh, whatever, the meetup groups that, that exist. And then conversations, what you're saying and what you're not saying. And then people can target um, misinformation. Maybe uh, they can bully you, they control you uh, because they can take this information about you uh, because you have revealed and shared it online. Um, you know, passively by just moving around using, you know, uh, allowing Google Maps to trap you or because you've, you know, taken photographs here and they're stored. And when they're stored, the location of the photograph is recorded. And, you know, and all of this information is allowing people to see inside you and then target you for, um, you know, smart, you use the word smart marketing initiatives or, you know, for, for dark sort of misinformation, uh, fake news initiatives. So it's, it's quite frightening that this is happening. Yeah, very, uh, <clears throat> it is very alarming. And, you know, in particular, what I find most alarming, I think, is the, the fact that it appears as though people don't really know where to look anymore to get facts. Uh, people are very, very confused about that. And um, I mean, I don't want to point fingers, but I think since the 2016 election, in particular, people don't really need, know where to look for good information uh, because they're always questioning their own realities. And I mean, what would you recommend <clears throat> that people do in this situation where they don't know where to look for, for ground truth? Uh, I mean, do you have any advice? <laughs> I mean, you're either there's two. You're either concerned about it or you're not concerned about it. So, you know, for large periods, I I was not concerned about it. I felt like you know, I I, would, I didn't mind being an open book, uh, mm -hmm. particularly professionally in terms of sharing. Uh, less so personally, but some people uh, don't want to be an open book, and and so they make decisions to use certain platforms and certain search engines and certain things in certain ways. They are very careful about the privacy settings on their, on, their, on their devices around what they're sharing and what they're not using in terms of going forward. Um, so, you know, th that's really the advice. You know, it's, it's, it's whether you, you know, and I would say the people who do care are still very much in the minority even though they're in, they're increasing you know because 
you know, let's just look at you and I, you know, we're using Zoom at the moment, you know, and uh, I don't know if you're paying to use Zoom, you probably are because you, this, this is going to last over half an hour, 40 minutes, but many people are using Zoom for free, uh, they have a free license. And so, you know, uh, this is not social media, this per se, it's a communication technology, but the people who are using the, the free Zoom license, do they know what they're giving up uh, when they install Zoom on their device or on their machines? Do they know what they're sharing when they are you know, having conversations? Uh, even if you're paying to use Zoom, do you know what you're sharing and giving up? You know, so we, we like these free things, so we like these cheap things, and we just don't seem, you know, we don't worry about the consequences of it. Occasionally, you know, you know, if we think that society gets a president or a prime minister or a leader who they don't like, and then they blame it on social media, or they end up leaving or staying within Europe and they blame it on social media, then maybe they get unhappy. But they've but but they've spent, you know, a decade or so enjoying sharing, communicating, conversing. You know, and and, and I'd say. It's, it's a, a minority still who uh, are unhappy about it, though, though it is increasing and escalating in terms of people who are being more cautious. And you and and the options are not, the alternatives are not that great because these are also what, what we call platform technologies. You know, so when you when you look at what I mean by platform technology is that you know Android connects me to my phone, it connects me to my wireless provider. It connects me to Netflix, it connects me to YouTube, it connects me to, it is this controlling platform. You know, so Android is this controlling platform, which, which in terms of the value chain from start to end, from literally the wireless, you know, my, my cell phone provider, to whatever I watch on TV, to watching the premiership in the UK, that, that they control that, they control that. You know, if I didn't have Android, I couldn't make phone calls, I couldn't use Google Maps, I couldn't watch Netflix, I couldn't play Candy Crush, I couldn't, you know, and so uh, it's a very, very, and so, um, you know, uh, that controlling perspective, that they, and, they, and they, they don't just control the interfaces, they control the data, they know me, they know me in terms of who I am. Whereas the newspaper that gets sent to my friend's house only the newspaper provider knows who that person is buying the newspaper. There's no channel, there's no platform, there's no intermediary. Uh, when you, you know, uh, download movies or watch movies or watch, you know, media, or do the, read The Guardian online or The Wall Street Journal online, Android knows you're doing that. And, and Android has your detail. And in some ways, The Guardian doesn't even know who you are because Android or the various platforms may or may not share that information. So the, you know, um, the Wall Street Journal used to be very valuable because of its subscriber base. You know, it was very reluctant to go, you know, you know, to be available for many, many, many years on Apple devices because part of the consequences of going on the Apple devices, this is in the early days, was that it would have to relinquish owner, ownership and knowledge of its subscriber base. That would become Apple's property because they're the platform. Okay. Yeah, so I'm really curious to hear, so we talked about it a little bit earlier. Uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier the the advent of deepfakes and i 
I don't even know how you would how you would push back against this or arm yourself against it because it seems like this technology. I mean, the deep fake. It's it looks so good that you can't you can't even discern that it's not real. And you know, is that you know, how is this going to be used in the future? I mean, I can see this being used for nefarious purposes, uh, definitely in the future. Uh, in particular, you know, we have an election season coming up here, uh, the 2020 elections, and you know, I can see you know should we be concerned that this particular type of technology is going to you know that we're going to be seeing that very soon here as things ramp up. Deep fakes could be something which, you know, at the moment, platforms say they're just platforms and they're not responsible for the content that's shared, whether it be fake news or deep fakes. Um, but I think they'll become a, where there will be platforms which their business model is based on authenticity. And, you know, it's, you know, it, and so when social media first came out, it was quicker, more responsive, more crowdsourcing than sort of traditional media. And some people, you know, when they looked at Arab Spring and they looked at how you could generate things and create revolutions and changes, you know, everyone was promoting and championing you know, social media. But what's lost in that now is this um, authenticity. And so I think there'll be a come a point where there will be platforms where they promise privacy or they promise authenticity or they promise both and you may have to pay for it you may have to pay for people to filter and change and so um, in the same way as that businesses will pay good money for good data and good information uh, so that they can make intelligence performance enhancing decisions I, I think people will start saying okay I, I do want to pay for a search engine which is unbiased and you know, is it going to show me stuff which is um, disingenuous, fake in terms of going forward? I want to read media outlets, and so I think that that's the, the rise of deep fakes is going to really uh, highlight that this is going to be something that people want because people will be unhappy that they're seeing Donald Trump saying something which he didn't really say, or you know. Um, um, Justin Trudeau say something he didn't really say or some other political leader and and we react to it and or that there's been some doctoring of images or even doctoring of content. People will be unhappy, whether it be CNN or Fox News or the New York Times, whoever it is, you know, I think they'll, they'll hopefully we'll get to a point where authenticity is really well valued and people are willing to pay for it and it might might be expensive. Uh, but, but you're getting a, a sort of a, 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 a checked, you know, a, a checked yeah. sort of, a, and so that, that, that's what's, and, and deep fakes because, you know, seeing will be believing, seeing and hearing is believing when you see deep fakes because they're so well done. And so you'll, you'll want people to check and have the technology and to be able to check the sources. Um, again, imagine a world where we all have technology embedded in us and, and so then you can prove, you know, I did not say this because I have a microphone built into me. <laughs> you know, it's like a, I can prove who I was standing next to in that photograph. And it wasn't that person that's been doctored because I have technology either in my pocket or embedded in me, which shows who I am, where I was, what I was doing. 
and it's used for authenticity reasons. Yeah, I suppose it's similar to how police officers are now required to wear like body cameras. Yes. And you know, that records the audio and the video of all of their interactions. So that way, you know, it goes both ways, right? So there's, uh, you know, when you have a officer who is engaging in inappropriate behavior, then it's recorded and then vice versa. If you have, you have somebody making a claim against the officer and you can say, hey, this is my alibi right here. I have all the audio, I have all the video recorded. So I, yeah, I could definitely see that. But I suppose what I'm taking away from everything that you're saying right now is that people have to, you know, to push back against the fake news, uh, to push back against the deep fakes and things of that nature, the, let's say the bad information or the, the misinformation, the disinformation is that people have to demand it. People have to, you know, be willing to part with some resources in the marketplace, uh, you know, pay for it in a sense to make sure that the information is of the highest quality and that it's not being adulterated in some, for some nefarious purposes. I'll just give an example of um, something I saw pasted, posted on Facebook recently by some very smart, respectable friends on Facebook, you know, and who, and they were just talking about uh, the recent 4th of July talk at Mount Rushmore by Donald Trump. I'm just trying to find it online just, just to type it. And so, um, and these are, and it doesn't matter. And, and they posted some image, don't know where the image came from. And it said, you know, in 1996, Bill Clinton said something when he visited Mount Rushmore, you know, and ABC said it was American ingenuity and creativity in 2008 when Barack Obama went there, CNA called it a majestic site and everything else. And in 2016, when Bernie Sanders campaigned there, you know, CNC described it as awe-inspiring. And in 2020, when Trump visits, CNA called it a celebration of white supremacy in terms of... <laughs> and so, um, and so uh, this was put in there, lots of people talking about it. And I said, you know, I, I looked online and I couldn't find anywhere, anywhere online that CNN actually made that statement. You know? Yeah. I said, you know, I, uh, I just wanted to, I said, what is the source for this? And, you know, when did, where, when did CNA say, CNN say this, you know, just recently? And can you tell me the sources for Bill Clinton's visits and Barack Obama's visit and Bernie Sanders' visits? Like, and no one could. And so, but this little piece of, you know, this little snapshot of information that was posted and circulated as an image, you know, was really firing people up, but no one knew about its veracity. No one could stand to its veracity. And I, and I just was like, I was, and, and I just thought that was quite interesting. And so, yes, that image might capture sentiments of what those media outlets have said or did say, but no one could find actual sources that they actually said that. And it was just a way of triggering and firing people. And, and I'm not saying that that didn't actually happen or get said, but no one can actually provide me with a source. No one can provide me with a source that this, this was actually said. And, and, and these are very well-read, you know, professors at very good universities around the world who are having a, a discussion on Facebook. And so it was, it was just interesting, you know, in terms of, you know, what is the source and how we're all triggered and how we're all, uh, me included, you know, I share things that I shouldn't share without understanding the source. Uh, 
some great colleagues that do work in, in, on the topic of um, uh, you know, misinformation, but particularly in terms of a, a, a particular type of misinformation called bullshit, which is when you make statements where you have no reference to the truth and you just want to have an agenda and you want to shape it. And, and there's some really good colleagues um, down in Washington State and Seattle who, who have been really working on this. They, they have a course on it in the university. You know, it's called Calling Bullshit in, a, in an Age of Big Data. So Calling Bullshit in an Age of Social Media. They have a book coming out. You know, we were inspired by their work. We did some research, which has really taken off about understanding BS in the workplace. Um, but it's all about understanding sources, all about understanding agendas, all about understanding how you're being controlled, uh, how you're being controlled and manipulated uh, because you're not asking who is saying this, what are their credentials, why are they saying it, and is what they're saying actually uh, you know, uh, authentic in terms of going forward. It's, it's very easy to just produce. You, you're not... You're not you're not limited by the truth. You have complete creative freedom to say whatever you want. And deep fakes will give us an even greater tool in that because you can, I can take you and have you having a conversation. You, you could be doing, you know, you could be doing this podcast, uh, not just with Ian McCarthy, but I could be manipulated to be whoever you wanted me to be and you could have this conversation with whoever you wanted to, to, to do the podcast and you could broadcast this and uh and you've just superimposed uh an actor on you know you've, you've done an interview of an actor but it's then superimposed with some famous person that you really wanted to interview and they're giving all the questions that you want uh, and you and you and, and you can make the most interesting podcast in the world because you can make the actor and the deep, resulting deep fake say whatever you want. Yeah, no, I've I've looked at some deep fake videos and I have a very hard time telling that it's a fake. Mm -hmm. um, like it's almost, in, it's almost like I can't even tell that it's a fake. So yeah, that's definitely. I'm I'm pretty scared about that technology, and I hope that there is like a counter to that. Like there's technology that's created in order to de detect that the manipulation of videos, like there's that there's some sort of fingerprint left where you can tell that this is not an authentic piece of media yeah. uh, because I, I'm very, I'm very scared about the weaponization of that particular type of, uh, of technology. Yeah. But like circling back real quick, quick, you know, one of the things that you just said uh, right, uh, right now that, I think is so important. And one of the things that I try to promote a lot, particularly when I engage with individuals on social media is the importance of who you listen to and in particular references. So like if you're engaging in a discourse and you know, you're going to make points, uh, please include your sources. Like I want to help you vet your sources just as you probably want to look at the sources who, whom I'm listening to. You know, I find it, uh, a little bit concerning that you felt like a colleague you said or a friend who is a professor or like on research level you know was sharing essentially what is equivalent to what i would call like a meme because there's no references or whatsoever included it's not even an article it's just kind of a, a picture with some words saying kind of you know pushing an agenda in a sense you know they're trying to trigger you in a certain way and i yeah one of the things about you know, the meme sharing, it just drives me insane is because people, people just don't vet the information. They don't 
don't even know if it's real or not, but because it, you know, it fits their preconceived worldview or their current, their political beliefs or whatever beliefs that they currently hold, you know, their, the, their biases just let it in really easily and then they share it. And it's, it just takes, you know, less than a second to, to click that share button and then it's gone. But I mean, so many people I see engaging online, posting information, and they don't include the original sources or they don't include sources. Like they, they put together these arguments, but they don't really understand that, okay, well, how do I know that the premises in your argument, that is like all the, all the support, all the supporting uh, portions of the argument to uh, support, the, uh, support the conclusion, you know, how do I even know that I should trust those? You're not including any, you're not, you're not including any sort of references or anything like that. And I mean, I've even been mocked before by individuals because I require references. Like I want to know where you're getting your information from. And, and they were like, well, what is this? You know, you know, grade school, what are we in school? You're going to require references. And I was like, I cannot think of a skill that is, so, you know, it's so important today than learning how to include references for anything that you write. And once you get beyond learning that skill, which is great to hear that, but also understanding that even published work in the best journals in the world is imperfect. You know, of course, it's, yeah. It's imperfect. Like, you know, it's, um, and so when you cite one source, so, you know, there'll be lots of research on, you know, times of COVID and what it was like working at home and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, um, research is an evolving and science is evolving. And so we, it's, uh, we only have temporary evolving understandings of what is right. And you cite a reference, you know, it's, uh, and sometimes that reference takes off and shape and shapes things, you know, like, you know, um, you know, look at some of the, the papers that have been retracted, you know, in, you know, in, in, in the last three months to do with COVID and treatments of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. It's, um, and so it's, uh, so first of all, does it have a source? And then who, what is the source? And then, you know, it might say Harvard or MIT and everything else, but then who is the actual author? And when you go to check them out, you know, are they, uh, you know, are they a very esteemed, credible professor there or are they uh, uh, an adjunct or a visiting professor, you know, in, you know, in terms of, um, you know, and, and, and this is the first thing they've ever written, you know, in terms of doing things or, or it's, you know, or, or it's attributed to them in the press. Uh, and it, it's, it requires time and effort to be, to do due diligence on this information. And so, and social media doesn't give you any of that. You know, it's just, you know, scan, 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 and it's consume. It's like candy crush for media. You know, it's, it's, it's just triggering bright lights and, and knowing what triggers you in terms of information. It, it, it requires work to do, to do due diligence. And so, um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's very worrying. Yeah, and one more thing I would add too with the, the scientific references is that it's generally good to try to see if there are other researchers who looked at the same problem. Uh, because even the best researchers, you know, if you just have one singular paper that, you know, had an N of 1,000 or 500, that is the number of like individuals in it, let's say for uh, a pharmaceutical study, uh, you know, even the, even, even the best researchers, you know, doesn't necessarily guarantee that the that 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 the conclusions are like 100% sound 
right? Because science, as you said, is this evolving process. Sometimes bad studies do get published. It's not perfect. I mean, I think your average scientist would happily, happily admit that the process isn't perfect, but it's just, it's the best that we have. It's the best that we know how to do from a uh, knowledge generation standpoint. So papers do get retracted. Sometimes results cannot be replicated. Uh, we have, you know, for example, uh, in psychology, there was a bit of a replication uh, crisis within the past decade or maybe even five years or so when they were trying to replicate older studies that were done perhaps like in the 80s or the 90s and they couldn't do it. So, you know, perhaps some things that we used to believe uh, because the science led us down this route no longer is so. So it's really good when you're looking for scientific references that, you know, obviously the credibility of the institution, the credibility of the researcher, but then see who else is looking at it. You know, are the papers coming from are the papers solely coming from industry or do you have a uh, eclectic mix? So for example, industry researchers, you have government researchers, you have uh, researchers from nonprofits, et cetera. And then, you know, then many, many uh, studies all pointing to the same thing. Yep. So that, I, that, that would be the only thing that I, I guess would add to that because uh, sometimes people are uh, a bit confused they present like a singular scientific study. Like for example, you can find scientific studies that say that anthropogenic or man-made global warming isn't a thing. And they're out there. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not the consensus because we have decades of research. And if you look at the research in total, uh, it overwhelmingly points to human beings being the cause of global warming. So that, that would, I guess that would be the only only addition I would add to that. <laughs> Great chatting to you. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's been it's been absolutely wonderful, Ian. Again, thank you so much for uh, choosing choosing to come on. It's been a pleasure. So, for those who are watching, where exactly can they find you? Like, you have you know you're on Twitter. You said you're on Facebook. Where else? Uh, where else can people find you online if they want to learn more information, you know, about you and the things that you're following and doing? Um, and perhaps maybe, you know, get access to the papers that we talked about today. So I have a blog, which um, is a good source of accessing my papers, uh, um, being able to download them for free. It's called It Depends. So if you search for Ian McCarthy and It Depends, it's a blog uh, which talks about my research and work and the world of business schools and management education. Um, two papers I mentioned were, you know, to do with social media. The bright side one is, is called Social Media get serious, so get serious about using it. And then the dark side one is called social media, it's serious. Um, if you reach out to me, you'll see it on the blog, free to download, or I can send you that. And then I've also done work on sort of fake news, deep fakes, trick or treat is the name of the, the, name of the article for that. And then also um, uh, confronting indifference to truth, uh, dealing with workplace bullshit. And they sort of all link together in terms of a a collection of work on information and how we are you know, pursuing agendas. It's been a, a, a real pleasure chatting to you, and I, you know, uh, happy to share any more information, you know, and links for your sort of listeners to access. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for those again who are watching or uh, listening to today's episode, so all the links to everything that uh, Ian just mentioned will be provided. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for uh, stopping by. And until next time. Thanks, John. Take care. Thinking Critically was brought to you by Grips Visual Marketing. They helped me to bring this podcast to life um, when it was just an idea. 
So that being said, if you're wanting to do a podcast and in need, don't exactly know where to get started, or perhaps you need some video services, make sure to check them out. You can find their information in the show notes.